again. Uh, I was kind of looking around the room a little bit ago, and I do see some new faces. And so if you are new with us for the very first time, thanks so much for being here and choosing to worship with us. It's been on the screen a couple times uh, already, but we would love for you to, to, if you are new with us, to text the word WELCOME to 833-276-5450. We'd just love to connect with you, find out who you are, and um, potentially how we could serve you and your family because, you know, I, I know it's, it's um, we kind of say this a lot in our services, it's kind of weird walking into a new place sometimes, you're trying to figure things out. It's entirely possible because 99% of the people that, uh, when they come for the very first time, they've actually watched some services first, and so it's entirely possible that there was, you watched a few services to get a little bit comfortable, wondering what you were getting yourself into. Um, but even then, you might be wondering, well, what, what makes the table different? A few years ago, we went through a process uh, to try to identify that because we would hear things from people like, oh, you, you guys are, are different. Um, and so we went through a process to try to identify what the, those things are. And so we created what it, we refer to as our identity statement, that we are a courageous, bridge-building, mission-driven church. It's actually reflected on the walls um, outside of both of the, the doors here in, in our um, lobby. But there's a statement at the end of that that I think is really, really important. And that is that it's not about us. And I hope that that is, for those of you who are new or newer with us, I hope that that is what you experience, that it's not about um, who we are or how good we are at what we do. That's because, I mean, the truth is we can be really good, but if the Lord is not at work in it, we aren't anything anyway. Um, And and so hopefully you experience that it's not about us, but it's ultimately about the work of Jesus um, in our lives and then through our lives as He's called us to make a difference in our community, and so hopefully you're able to experience that um, while being here at the table. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the message. Father, we have um, sung this morning about who you are, about your love for us. Um, Cody just reminded us of the hope that we have because of the work of Jesus, that when we could do nothing, he accomplished everything that allows us to be brought into a relationship with you. God, in that relationship, you desire to change our hearts, to, to mold us and shape us so that we become more like you in terms of how we live. And Father, I, I pray that you would just continue to help us to understand more about the life that you've given to us, uh, the way that we are supposed to live our lives so that we can uh, live to please you, but then also, um, God, to, to make the difference in the lives of other people around us that you have called us to make too, because We have hope because of the work of Jesus, and Father, we're supposed to extend that hope um, to those around us as well. So Father, give us insight into our hearts this morning. Um, Show us places that uh, we need to change so that we can experience the abundant life that you promised to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm curious, does anybody read warning labels on products at all? A couple of people, like for the most part, my assumption is that most of us don't pay attention to warning labels unless it is on a product that we consider to be dangerous. And then maybe you want to read the warning label to just make sure you don't do something that is going to um, permanently maim you or something like that. Um, but even if you have never read a warning label in your life, maybe you have seen a, a post on social media with a link to an article that talks about ridiculous warning labels. Now, i got to tell you, uh, uh, when I read these articles and read these different labels, there are some assumptions that I make. 
I assume that companies who put ridiculous warning labels on their products are not trolling us. I think they do that sometimes just to see who's paying attention. Uh, for instance, uh, this was an, a warning label, the care instructions on a man's shirt. Uh, I saw this once. It said, just give it to your wife. Which, for the record, I find offensive and sexist, so I want you to just write that down. But I am, I'm working off of the assumption that, that companies put warning labels, the things on the warning labels on their products, for a reason. Likely that somebody has done that thing that they say not to do. Maybe even the company has gotten sued for that thing, and they said, well, you didn't tell me I couldn't do that, or I shouldn't do that, and so it was you know, risk management or attorney somewhere that said, no, you've got to put this explicitly on the warning label so people know not to do that. So I, even though it's like obvious to 99% of the world you shouldn't do that, there's a few people who, for whatever reason, it just wasn't obvious to. I'm going to share some of um, some, some ridiculous warning labels that have been found on products. Um, this is from a Reader's Digest article that was released in April of this year. I'll give you the first one. It's a warning label on a wheelbarrow that said this, not intended for highway use. <laughs> yeah, so I started to think about that. Like, why would they put that on there? What would, did somebody like tow it on the back of their truck down the highway? I mean, could you imagine that was, I don't, I don't know. Another one, this is a label, warning label on a stroller said, warning, remove child before folding. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's probably smart. Okay, you ready for this one? Warning label on a thermometer. Warning, once the thermometer has been used rectally, it should no longer be used orally. Somebody learned a hard lesson, I think. <laughs> There's once a warning, I don't know if this is, I don't even know if they sell them anymore, but I don't, I don't know how long this warning label was on the iPod shuffle, but it said, warning, do not eat. I don't know why you would eat it. Warning label on a drill found at a local hardware store said, not intended for use as a dental drill. Now listen, put yourself in the dental chair, and the dentist reaches over and grabs the DeWalt 18 volt and holds it up to your mouth. Out of there real fast. It's a warning on a, a warning label on a jet ski that said, "Do not use a match or open flame to check fuel level." Seems pretty smart. Warning label on vanishing a, a vanishing ink marker that said, "Do not use for signing checks or other legal documents." <laughs> One more, can of pepper spray said, "Warning: product may irritate eyes." And I say, you know what? I hope so. That's what it's designed for. So here's the point. We see these things on warning labels that seem obvious to everybody, but yet, for some reason, some people just didn't quite get it. So we are continuing our series uh, today called Walk Like a Christian. Uh, and if you weren't here with us the first week of this series, uh, kind of laid out the rationale behind this series. The word walk is used approximately 100 times in the New Testament, oftentimes in a metaphorical sense related to the way in which we live. And in the passage that we're looking at, Ephesians 4 and 5, we're studying through that throughout this series, the word walk is used that way several different times. 
So it's in reference to how we live, and so that's what we're talking about. And so we started talking the first week with uh, how Christians walk together, uh, that we're in this together. We need people around us. Last week we talked about how Christians walk differently, that there is a different set of beliefs and values that lead to a different set of behaviors that should be characteristic of who we are as Christians that set us apart from everybody else. The title of today's message is Christians Walk. Isn't it obvious? And I'll tell you why I say that. We're looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen as I read it here in just a second. Or uh, if you are a version user, you can navigate your way to our live event. You can follow along there. But here's what we're going to find in this section that we're looking at in Ephesians 4. It's a list of instructions written by the Apostle Paul. Things either to do or not to do. And we're going to read through that here in just a second. And your initial reaction is going to be, isn't that obvious? And I'll tell you, that was my initial reaction. As I started to study through this section a few weeks ago in preparation for this morning's message, I thought to myself, what am I going to say about this? Because these things that Paul says either to do or not to do, it's like, well, yeah, it's obvious. But then I started to think for just a little bit deeper, and I realized, you know, Paul is not just writing random things, but there's a reason behind all of the instructions that he's given. And the reason that Paul is writing these instructions, which to us maybe on the surface seem obvious, is because somebody in the church at at Ephesus or some people in the church at Ephesus were struggling with these things in some way. And so then as I thought about it a little bit more, I thought, well, if they struggled with some of these things, it's entirely possible that we struggle with some of them too. Maybe we just need to look a little bit deeper, look under the hood a little bit more and figure that out. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. With these instructions that seem obvious, we're going to think a little bit deeper about where we struggle with some of these things and then what we do about it. So let me read this section for us, Ephesians 4. Starting in verse 25, it's actually, I'll read down through the end of the chapter, end of chapter 4. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. and Do not give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief steal no longer. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. There are five sets of instructions that I want us to look at. These things that we think on the surface are obvious, but maybe we struggle with them. Let's talk about the first one. The first one, Paul says in verse 25, Therefore put away lying and speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. So it says, don't lie, but speak the truth. And again, on the surface, like pretty obvious. This one is obvious to us because it is one of the Ten Commandments. I am sure that if I were to take time this morning and have you get out a piece of paper and write down the Ten Commandments, you might not be able to write down all ten, but I bet the number one most recorded answer would be, thou shalt not 
lie. We know that one. You know, we used to say to each other as kids, liars go to hell. So we all know we're not supposed to lie. But yet there has to be a reason that Paul says to the church, put off lying and speak the truth to one another. Now, to be honest, we don't really know what's behind that. We don't know the specific situation that was happening in the church of Ephesus that Paul was speaking into. But if they struggled with it, maybe we do too. And I think if we look below the surface at this one, the reality is that every one of us struggle. Where might we struggle with this one? We act like life is great when it is not. You run into somebody that you haven't seen in a while, maybe at the grocery store or wherever it is, and they say, oh, hey, how's it going? And you say, great, when life is barely hanging on by a thread. And I don't want this, to, this message this morning to be all of the things that are wrong with social media, though I think oh, lots of things are wrong with social media. But what do we do? We go on social media. We post the highlights of our lives, which either consciously or unconsciously causes people to think that life is great when nothing could be further from the truth. But we feel pressure because it seems like everybody is doing that. Everybody's life seems great. And so we just kind of present that face to people even though maybe we're really struggling. And so when we cause people to believe that life is great when it is not, what are we doing? We're lying to one another. Another area that we might struggle with this one is, as Christians, we present the idea that we are close in our relationship with God when we are not. Hashtag blessed. We throw that on a photo. We put it out there, and which is an indication that we're blessed by God. But maybe in the midst of that, we're really struggling to see where God is at work in our lives. Or maybe you retweet the verse of the day when you haven't actually cracked your Bible in months. Or you see somebody post something somewhere about how they're struggling, and in the comments you say praying for you, when in reality you haven't actually spent any time in prayer in weeks. But as Christians, there is this pressure on us too to kind of have everything figured out, to present ourselves in a certain way that, that, that we're, you know, our faith is solid and that our relationship with God is close. I mean, I feel that as a pastor. There are times in the midst of difficult circumstances when I think to myself, you know, I don't know how honest I can be about this. What, what, do I, what are people going to think if I tell them that in the midst of the struggle, I'm, uh, I'm having a hard time seeing the goodness of God? Or I think to myself, well, what, what would people think about me if I told them that there are times that I, I struggle to pray because of disappointment with God? When I don't understand why God allows things to happen or doesn't do something in another situation. And so I begin to wonder and question and think, well, you know, if I were honest about those things, well, maybe people would go to another church where there's a pastor who seems like he has a direct a line to God who tells him all of the things all of the time. And so I hide. Sometimes we hide. 
And we present this idea that our relationship with God is close when we are not. We lie to each other, and maybe even sometimes even lie to ourselves. So what do we do? We don't lie, but we speak the truth. We should be appropriately vulnerable so that we can get the help and support that we need. Now, what do I mean by that? What I don't mean is that the next time you see that person in the store that you haven't seen in 10 years, and it's maybe only just an acquaintance, and they say, hey, how are you doing? And then your response is, here is all of the stuff. I don't think you have to tell everyone everything. But you better have somebody, somebody that really knows you, somebody that knows what's happening in your life so that they can be an encouragement to you. Because when we suffer in silence, that's what leads to death. It seems pretty obvious, don't lie, but speak the truth. Let's talk about the next one. Be angry. But do not sin, verse 26. That's exactly what Paul writes. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Again, seems relatively straightforward. If I were to ask you, hey, do you think Christians should be known as people who get angry all the time? Your response would be, no, nah, you know, it's probably not a great idea. I think this one may be different, though, than all of the rest of the ones that we're going to look at. Because for some of us, we don't have to think deeply about it because this may, might be one that stares us right in the face. But I do think the instruction is interesting. It says, don't sin in your anger, or in your anger, do not sin. Meaning that there are times that we can get angry if it's being angry for the right reasons. Scholars often refer to it as righteous indignation which sounds like really like it's, it's something really profound rather than you just get mad at stuff. So we can get angry over sin, but we cannot sin in our anger. Here's where I think we may really struggle with this. We get angry and take it out on others, especially those who are closest to us. I think it's okay to get frustrated at the state of life, living in a fallen world. It's okay to get angry at those things, but what we cannot do is let those frustrations, the frustrations of life, be taken out on those who are closest to us. So we can get angry over sin, but where we sin in our anger is when that anger is directed towards people so that there is strain in relationships. Because what happens a lot of times, we get frustrated at the end of a long day, and we go home, and then all of a sudden we take that frustration out and it manifests itself as anger against our spouse or our kids. But it's so important that in our anger we do not sin because relationships matter. So what do we do? My encouragement would be that we deal with our anger quickly because relationships matter. That's what Paul says. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. 
just be really practical. At the end of the day, when you pull into your driveway, take a breath. Say a quick prayer. God, as I enter into my house, help me to be present with my family, with my kids. Help me to not take the frustrations of the day or of the drive out on those who do not deserve this. Because relationships matter. Number three, this, again, this is another one that seems really obvious. Here's the instruction. Don't steal, but work hard. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Don't steal, but work hard. Again, my assumption is this one is relatively obvious. Because it also is one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. So we get it. In fact, this might be one where you read through it and you're like, what in the world is happening in the church at Ephesus that Paul feels like he needs to say, stop stealing? Because my guess is that likely for all of us, none of us are literally stealing from other people. Probably not the case. Maybe Probably not. You hear stories about embezzlement. You know, people do that sometimes. You see that. And I don't know if you saw the story that was in the, in the news a couple of weeks ago about the Chiefs fan who was arrested for robbing banks. And the reason that he was robbing the banks was to fund his trips to all of the away games. So if you are that diehard of a Cowboys fan, stop. Um, but seriously, like, I mean, if that's an issue, like, stop, confess, get help. Turn yourself in and all of that. But I, my guess is for most of us, maybe all of us, none of us are literally stealing from other people. But where might we struggle? Maybe it is the fact that we just aren't generous. And so therefore, in some sense, we are stealing from other people. Think about the way that we typically view our finances. The first priority are the things that we have to pay for, like the needs that we have. And we have to buy groceries, we have to pay for the house, the car, all of those things. There are bills that come every single month that you have to pay. So that's first. What are our needs? The needs that I have, that our family has, that's what we take care of first. After that, then we think about the things that we want. We want to do things that are fun. We want to go out to eat. We want to take trips or, uh, you know, and this is true in our family, we want our kids to be involved in sports. And so sometimes that, those things are really expensive. So typically how we think is we have the things that we need, we have to have, so we pay for those first. Then there are the things that we want to do, and so we take care of those things. And then typically with whatever's left, whatever pool of money that is, that's where we're, what gives us the opportunity to be generous. That's the exact opposite of the way that God wants us to live. Because Jesus created an upside-down kingdom. And over and over again, in the New Testament, we read about the importance of putting the needs of other people first before our own. And so God's desire for us is to be generous first. That should be the first priority. That we don't just look at our own needs, but we look out for the needs of others, are generous first, and then we take care of the other things. So I want to talk about just finances in church for just a second. 
The reason that this is so significant, that we are to be generous, is because the more generous that we are, the more ministry can happen and the more lives can be changed. So the more generous that we are, the more ministry can happen and the more lives that can be changed. I wish this weren't the case, but it does take ministry, uh, it takes money to do ministry. We have salaries that we have to pay for, for people that lead ministries. The ministries themselves cost money, the curriculum, resources, other things that go with it so that we can provide the programs and the ministries that we do. It costs money for us to have places and spaces to meet so that those ministries can happen. And the more generous that we are, the more ministry that we can do, which leads to more lives being changed. And if we aren't generous, at some point, we, the elders, our staff, we have to look and say, okay, how do we just maintain the status quo? Or maybe even, what are we going to do to cut back so that we can make ends meet? God desires that we are generous for the sake of other people. That giving regularly, generously, it is a practice that forces us to think not just about our own needs, but for the interests of others on a regular basis. That's God's desire for us, that we're generous. So we shouldn't steal, but work hard so that we can be generous. The next one, number four, no foul language, but we should be using words that build up. Verse 29, no foul language should come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up those who hear. Okay, so I've said this many times before. I grew up in church. Verse 29 of Ephesians chapter 4 was the go-to proof text for not cussing. Don't let any foul language come out of your mouth, especially as a teenager. Heard that one a lot. It is entirely possible that you cuss like a sailor. And if that's the case, I would say maybe you should think about that. But probably for most of us, that's not the struggle. Because the real struggle for us is in how we use our words. That we use our words to tear people down instead of build them up. We gossip. Can you believe so-and-so? We complain. I can't believe that they would do. And in our words, we're tearing people down when what we're supposed to do with our words is build each other up. So rather than tearing one another down with our words, we should be using words that build each other up. So what should we do? We should seek to encourage one another with our words because they breathe life into people. So I've actually got a very specific challenge for you to do this week in relation to this set of instructions. With some of the other ones, there may be things that you need to do different, but this one, I just have a very specific challenge for every one of us. Here's the challenge. I want you to have five I see in you conversations this week. An I see in you conversation is I see this positive trait in you. And it may not be that literal, but it could be, hey, I just really appreciate this thing about you, or you're really good at this thing. Like, just use some words this week, five conversations that you can build someone up and breathe life into people. Because we've all been there, those moments when somebody says, hey, I noticed this about you, and it adds wind into our sails, and it's so beneficial. So just do that this week. And I would really encourage that to be five in-person conversations 
Um, but if you can't do that, at least text messages or email or something, but do that. Five times this week, I see in you, use your words to build somebody up this week. The last one, last set of instructions. Verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other. Again, this one, as we read it, it should be pretty straightforward. As Paul kind of gets to the end, it seems like this section is really a catch-all because there is a list of several things that we should not do, but I believe that they should be relatively obvious to us including the fact that this uh, shouting, what is translated for us as shouting, it could actually be translated brawling because the word that's used could be used of either a verbal or a physical altercation. So can you imagine what was going on in the church for the Apostle Paul to feel like he had to write to them, hey guys, stop getting in physical fights all the time. It's probably not a good idea. But as we look at that, I bet we think, you know what, man, that's not me. I haven't gotten in a fight since I was like eight years old, so I'm good. Don't have to worry about that anymore. But I bet in reality, all of us really struggle. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you where I think we might. Our struggle may be in the fact that we pretend or say that we overlook an offense to only bring that up and use it as a weapon later. Here's how it happens. There's a conflict. Maybe in your marriage. Maybe with somebody else. And maybe there is the realization that an offense has been committed. The person goes to you and says, hey, I'm sorry. And you say, I forgive you. Which means that I will not bring this thing up against you and use it against you again. Or... Maybe that wasn't the case, and in the moment you said, I'm not going to say anything about it, and I'll pretend like everything is okay, and then all of a sudden something else happens at some point in the future, and then you go back and say, and I am still mad about this. Or you always do that, and then that instance is brought up again as a weapon that's used ultimately to destroy that relationship. When we only pretend to overlook an offense or say that that's what we're doing and we don't actually do that, bitterness sets in and bitterness always destroys. So what should we do? We put off all of those things and we should be people who are quick to forgive. We are quick to forgive because if we can't get along, I would say this is true in our marriages, it's true in relationships within the church, even with our friends. Then why would anyone ever want to be a part of what we're doing? Forgiveness is a way of life for followers of Jesus. Because we are forgiven, we are to forgive. And Jesus, he talked about this in Matthew 18. There is no limit to that forgiveness. It is all the time, every time. It's releasing that bitterness or that anger against that other person so that the relationship is restored. Part of why this is so significant, interpersonal relationships, is because Jesus came to reconcile all things to himself through the cross. Oftentimes we think about our relationship with God. 
And the work of Jesus allows us to have a right relationship with God. And that is true. But at the same time, we're to be reconciled together. And the reconciliation that we have together is to be a testimony of the reconciliation that we have with God. And so if we can't get along, what is that saying to other people outside the church? They're not going to want to be a part of anything that we're doing. These instructions that Paul gives to us at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, on some level, they seem really obvious. But yet when we look a little bit deeper, the reality is probably every one of us struggles with every single one. And it's my hope this morning that the Spirit of God reveals those things to us so that we can get it right. So that we can be the people that God has called us to be and then have the influence in our world that God has called us to have. So I want you to think about it this week. How do Christians walk? Isn't it obvious? But even though it's obvious, we still struggle. Will you pray with me?